Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore who Jesus is, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into God's Word and what He has to teach us today. So listen in as we jump into what God has in store. Jesus, there is just something special about His name, isn't it? There's just something so special about the name of Jesus, and I love these opportunities that we have to be together as the church family to raise his name and to lift him high in this place. And I'm grateful for every opportunity that I have uh, to stand on this stage and to share messages from God's Word. And I'm particularly excited about today because I believe that this might be one of the more important messages, if not the most important message I've ever preached. Uh, And I believe so passionately about what we're talking about this morning from God's Word. And I believe that there's work that the Lord wants to do as we praise His name and as we open ourselves up to say, God, show us what it is that you want to show us this morning. And I've been praying diligently, as I do every week, but been asking God for a lot of wisdom today as we continue in this series on heaven. And here's the deal, straight out of the gate, most people want to go to heaven. Most people want to go to heaven. According to the Pew Research Center, 75% of Americans across all faith backgrounds, across all church statuses, across all I'm a believer, I'm not a believer, 75% of Americans across all demographics acknowledge there is a heaven. Meaning that Bible-believing Christians like us, followers of Jesus, want to go to heaven. Well, so do Muslims and so do Hindus, and so do Mormons, and so do Jehovah's Witnesses, and so do even a lot of agnostics. But the truth of the matter is, not everyone is going to heaven. And my goal today is to clear up as much confusion about that as possible, and also for us to dig into the truth of God's Word about this incredible place, heaven, and how we can know that we can go there. So without saying it's it's, it's a kind of an agreed upon principle that there's a, a lot of misconceptions that we have about heaven. And Pastor Jeff unpacked a few of these last week, and I'm going to continue to unpack some of them today and in the following two weeks as well. But there are some misconceptions, particularly about how we get to heaven. And these misconceptions are, are formed uh, based on lots of things. And maybe it's just traditions or things that we've heard, uh, and they're not rooted necessarily in the truth. But the reality is I think the misconceptions that we have about heaven are pretty much rooted in the same way that you and I have misconceptions about every normal day life kind of things. We just kind of believe things to be true whether or not they are. Who amongst us has not believed that if I swallow a piece of gum, it is going to take seven years for it to digest? in my stomach. I mean, I was taught that as a kid. And the the medical teams have come together and said that that is, in fact, not true. The chewy base of the gum is indigestible, meaning it just passes through your body and whatever else the body can absorb, it does. It's one of those moments, I don't encourage you to continue to do that, but it's not going to stay there for seven years. Who amongst us believed that George Washington had wooden teeth? I did. That was taught to me as historical fact in elementary school that George Washington had wooden teeth. The historians have spoken. He did not have wooden teeth. He had very bad oral hygiene, meaning he lost his teeth, and he was given dentures made of ivory, brass, and gold. And as they aged, they took on a wood-like appearance. But I believed growing up George Washington had wooden teeth. Maybe you believe if you're in the southern hemisphere and you flush a toilet, it will go the other way. The Coriolis effect, that air in the other hemispheres spins in the opposite direction, when in reality, that doesn't happen. 
Now, if the jets of your toilet are installed the other way, they will go in a counterclockwise manner, but the Coriolis effect is not enough to cause that to happen. Did you believe growing up that if you dropped a penny from the Empire State Building and hit somebody on the head, it would kill them? I was told that, and I think it was just one of those manners of saying, let's don't throw things off of 100-story buildings, which is a great principle, by the way. I I am fully in support of them putting this signage at the top of the Empire State Building. But the physicists have spoken and said that the weight of a penny, the force from the top of the Empire State Building, it is going to cause pain, but it is not enough to cause death. It's this perception that we believe, and then probably my most favorite one, who had to wait 30 minutes after eating before they could get back into the pool? (laughs) Because you might have a muscle cramp. You know, the Mayo Clinic has spoken on this, the premier clinic, healthcare organization probably in the United States of America, and they have said that when you eat, the digestion process does pull energy away from your muscles, but you would have to eat copious amounts of food in order for you to have a muscle spasm while you were swimming. I know where this one comes from. This was moms in the 70s and 80s who needed a break. And they said, we just need a 30-minute break. And so let's all get together and say, we got to wait for 30 minutes. You sit on the side of the pool so that moms can have a little bit of a break. But see, these are all rooted in something. In fact, they're rooted in tradition or someone at some point started spreading this information and we just kind of tended to buy into it. I think it's well-intentioned, but it's not always accurate. See, where my sights are set today is the same concept is true when we look at this concept of heaven. There are some things that we believe particularly about how we can get to heaven that is just simply not rooted in the Word of God. And so I want to unpack some of those things as we dive into the Word of God together, and I'm going to pray that He would show up in a way that can only be described by Him as we just open ourselves up to the Word of God today. So again, know that I'm so grateful that you're here with us this morning, and I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And I want you to particularly pray uh, for maybe the people in the room who are struggling today. And will you just voice a prayer just kind of in your own heart that God would just work in the lives of people who are hurting this morning, or maybe people who have questions, that He would show them that He is in fact here and that He loves each and every one of us. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for this day. What a joy it is to be together. Thank you for a powerful morning of worship already, and thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us, that you would strengthen us, and that you would help us to see what it is that you want us to see today. God, as we just open ourselves up to you. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. My prayer is that this is helpful today, both for your own personal walk with the Lord, but also for those of you that are are sharing the truth of Jesus with others, which I hope is all of us. I pray that this message will clear up some things for a world that is in so desperate need, such desperate need of the hope of the gospel. So I want to look at some verses in the book of Acts. And we're going to be going from Acts 1 through Acts 4, several different verses. But in Acts chapter 1, you're going to see these words up here on the screen as well. Before I read these verses, what's happened in Acts chapter 1 is this is post-resurrection. Post-resurrection meaning that Jesus has died, Jesus has raised from the dead, and for about a 40-day period of time, Jesus is on the earth, and he's working with his disciples, and he's continuing to teach his disciples, and he gives them these convincing proofs of the resurrection. And he promises them that the Holy Spirit's going to come, that he's going to go back to heaven, but that the Holy Spirit will come and will be their guide. In fact, he tells them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that you will be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth, including little old Tennessee. They didn't know about Tennessee yet, but we're in the the ends of the earth. 
We're in that category, that the message of the gospel has now made it here to us. And right after Jesus gives them this commission of what they are going to do, pick up with me in verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. And when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go." So Jesus ascends to heaven, and these angels appear, and they remind the disciples that Jesus is going to come back to the earth just like you saw him leave. This is huge. Jesus went up to heaven, and the angels promised the disciples he is going to come back down to earth. The question at hand this morning, has that happened yet? No. Jesus has not come back to the earth for that final time to make everything right. So what does that mean for you and I? It means that you and I are in the same point of history as the early disciples. We're at the same point of history, and it's hard for us to fathom that, isn't it? There is nothing different about the first century world that Peter and John were in that we are in right now. Now, granted, there's technology, and there's social media, and there's electricity, but they didn't have those things. But in terms of just historically, we're in the same season of history. We are waiting for the return of Jesus. And what Jesus promised his disciples is he said, I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who will guide you and who will help you to fulfill this mission and who will help you to walk into all truth. And so if you scroll over to Acts chapter 2, verses 1, that's precisely what happened. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the Holy Spirit comes and falls on this group of first century disciples. And they give, the Holy Spirit gives them all that they need to carry out that mission and that commission that Jesus gave us. And they preach the gospel. And thousands of people, it says in Acts 2, come to faith in Christ. In fact, the church was set in motion in Acts chapter 2 because of the power of the Holy Spirit. If you keep going in Acts chapter 3. Jesus continues to get a hold of the lives of his disciples. Particularly, there's this story that jumps out of the page in Peter and John. And Peter and John are two of Jesus' first disciples, and they're going into the temple complex, and they stumble upon a beggar who cannot walk. And this beggar asked asked Peter and John for money, but Peter and John assured him that they had something better to offer him. And so they say, in the name of Jesus, you can get up and walk. And that's precisely what happens. And so this beggar, he begins thanking and praising Jesus, and he goes into the temple, and he begins to talk about how Jesus has radically changed him. And there's a crowd of onlookers that see all of this. And this crowd of onlookers has a lot of questions about what happened. They have some misconceptions about what was going on in this moment when Peter and John brought healing in the name of Jesus to this man who was begging. And so Peter and John address this situation, and they address the onlookers, and that's in Acts chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. And they say to the crowd, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can now all see. 
And so Peter and John say to these onlookers, it is in the name of Jesus. It is only in faith in Jesus Christ that this man is healed. And because of Jesus Christ, he is now whole. But keep reading forward. This bold messaging by Peter and John is not received very well. The bold messaging does not bode very well with the religious leaders of the day. And so instead of celebrating the healing that comes through Jesus Christ, instead of celebrating the wholeness that comes through Jesus Christ, the Sadducees and the court officials, they arrest Peter and John. And they bring them before the high court and they force them to answer a question. And the question that they force them to answer is in Acts chapter 4, verse 7. The question that they force them to answer, by what power or by what name did you do this? By what power, by what name did you do this? Did this miracle happen? And Peter continues in verses 8 through 12. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And the key verse for today in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And if you continue on, it says that the high priests were astounded at the courage of these ordinary men. You have these high priests who are behind the veil, And they're ultra-religious, and they know all the rules, and they are bringing people in for questioning who are actually out doing the ministry. And they say, by what power do you do this? And what Peter and John recounted was the power of Jesus because Jesus had radically changed them. And he said, Jesus radically changed this man, and Jesus can radically change your life as well, but you've got to understand the one that you crucified, the one that you put to death, is the one that truly offers each and every one of us life. So what did Peter and John and the early disciples experience? Well, they experienced Jesus present with them. They saw him die. They saw him resurrected. They had these moments, these snapshots where Jesus was walking with them and teaching them in person. And then they watched him ascend to heaven. And then the angel comes and reminds them, you don't have to keep looking up. Jesus is going to come back at some point. But until he does, he's going to give you the Holy Spirit to guide you and direct your work. When you think about the first century disciples, that's pretty much all they have. They had the knowledge of what they have seen, and then they had the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you and I have access to today? We have access to the exact same things. The knowledge of what we have seen, but also the power of the Holy Spirit. What we have that the early disciples didn't have is we have the Bible from start to finish recorded for us. We also have over 2,000 years of church history where we can see the faithfulness of men and women throughout the generation But see, the understanding of Peter and John of what Jesus was doing was simply based on this truth. He has gone to heaven, and he is coming back. But he has not come back yet. He has gone to heaven. He will come back. He has not come back yet. But until he does, the Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us into all truth. They were camping out in this truth. Right there in verse 12, they were living their life based on this truth that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And that is the truth that our faith is built upon today as well. 
Because again, remember, we're in that same point in history. We're in the same point in history as the early disciples. Our faith has to be built on this truth as well, that there is no name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So from there, let's unpack a couple misconceptions. You can take some notes if you want to. Uh, Maybe this would be some things that you can reflect upon throughout the course of the week. But I want to unpack a couple misconceptions about how to get to heaven. And we're going to pull in some other texts as well. But these are probably what I have experienced, the three most common misconceptions that I hear about how to get to heaven. Because again, over 75% of people acknowledge that heaven is real and they want to go there. But there are some pretty stark misconceptions that we have potentially bought into. And so hopefully this is clarifying for you this morning. Three misconceptions about how to get to heaven. Number one, everyone goes to heaven. Everyone goes to heaven. It's a misconception. This is a really hard truth, but it's one that we cannot shy away from. Everyone upon their death does not go to heaven. Everyone upon their death will either be with Jesus in heaven, or they will be apart from Jesus in hell. And why this tends to be a struggle for many of us to kind of quote-unquote be okay with is that I think we tend to struggle with dividing lines, don't we? We tend to struggle when somebody gives us a truth and we realize that that truth might make us a little bit more uncomfortable. It's been my experience that uh, the further we have gone as a culture, it seems the more uncomfortable we have become. (laughs) The more that we have advanced as a culture, the more that uncomfortable we have gotten with that dividing line. The fact that there is truth and there is false. Jokingly, I was thinking about the 70s and the 80s when I grew up, and I think about youth sports in the 70s and 80s, and I hope this doesn't burst anybody's bubble in the room, but when I grew up, we would actually tell a group of kids that they lost a game. (laughs) And some of you are like, what? How did you manage? You know, when we lost a game, my dad actually told me, Jason, this will help you build character. And it did. Jokingly, Uh, A few decades ago, uh, when I was a kid, the teacher was always right. But I think about all of my friends who are in education now, and they remind me, oh, Jason, what a nirvana utopian environment you live in, (laughs) to where you would think that the professionals are actually right. All of my teacher friends tell me that the, 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 the hill that they have to kind of traverse every day now is convincing a parent that they are right opposed to their 11-year-old who has a very limited viewpoint on the world. I actually remember one time as a kid telling my dad that my English teacher was not a very good teacher and that she was teaching us incorrectly. And y'all, I cannot make this up. My dad looked at me with the straightest of faces and said, I'm sorry, but where did you get your education degree from? Because she has one and you don't, so I'll trust her. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? He's right. That was hard to hear. But he is right. And I think as a culture, because we don't want to make anybody feel bad, we've drifted to a culture till we think the dividing line is wrong. But you know, in reality, we do this all the time. If you run a business, you know that if you have 10 employees who are out on the sales force and they're selling the same product and it's the same process and it's the same kind of tools that you have given both of them, if you have a top seller on your team and we'll just call her Allison and she's killing it, 
and you have the bottom seller on the team, and his name's Tony, and all he's doing is basically showing up for work, any boss that is worth their weight would know that Allison and Tony should not get the same reward. It's not right to say to Allison, you get the same thing that Tony gets, because what you're doing is you're completely diminishing the reward. When you say it goes to everyone, now to clarify, the reward is available for everyone. Heaven is available to everyone. Heaven is available to you. It's available to me. It's available to the vilest of the vile. But it is not a promise to us just because. Jesus never made a claim that everyone would be in an eternity with him. Rather, he gives us a a stark opposite of that. He gives us a a very clear dividing line. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 is, is one of the clearest examples of this. These are the words of Jesus. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. See, Jesus actually paints a picture that the road to eternal life is pretty narrow. And he says, fewer people find that. He says, whereas the road that leads to destruction is much wider, that's much easier to find. And Jesus teaches the opposite of what we sometimes prefer to believe culturally. And this is the verse, in fact, these two verses are the two verses that keep me up at night. (laughs) It's been a prayer as I've prayed through these verses for 20 plus years, but I've really ramped up my prayer and seeking to understand these verses over the past several years as I lead this congregation. You may or may not know this. I made a post about this on my social media this weekend, but this weekend is actually the 10-year birthday celebration of our first meeting ever of our regional campus at Rolling Hills Community Church. When we stepped out from the Franklin campus and started what was the South Nashville campus, there was about 40 people there. 10 years ago, this weekend is when that happened, and I'm so thankful for what God has done over those 10 years, and I'm excited about the 10 years that are to come. But i got to be honest with you. It's not a worry, because I'm not a worrying type of person, so I'll call it a conviction. My conviction is that we all are going to be held accountable. I'm going to be held accountable. You're going to be held accountable for how we handle the Word of God and how we teach the Word of God and how I pastor this congregation, and I want it to be abundantly clear Many people may think they are right with God when in reality they are not. And it's not to be scary this morning. It's not to make you nervous. It's not to make you anxious, but rather it's to dig into the truth of God to say that there is truly no other name by which a man or woman can be saved than through Jesus Christ. Which leads to this second misconception about how to get to heaven. The second misconception is that Jesus is one of many ways to get to heaven. Jesus is but one of many ways to get to heaven. In John 17, 3, Jesus in his prayer to God says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is telling us that eternal life is found in knowing and having that personal relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ. And this prayer of Jesus to God very clearly, along with many other scriptures, shows us that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. But, you know, research would actually show us quite a different picture. I made a reference to a a study from the Pew Research Center, which uh, was that first stat, and they've released a really comprehensive study on this back in 2021. And you can go look this up yourself. It's really, really fascinating. 
And they looked at the view of the afterlife across Christians and across non-churched and across Americans as a whole. And there are pages upon pages of results that you can go look at. But there was one stat particularly that really stuck out to me. And it really jumped off the page to me in this report in regards to how we get to heaven. And what they said among Protestant religious groups And if you don't know what Protestant religious group means, that means the Baptists, the Evangelicals, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Pentecostal. We are a Protestant religious group, a Protestant evangelical group. And they said in Protestant religious practices, right around 50% of respondents, right around 50% of respondents who acknowledged or who who said they were a Christian of a Protestant affiliation, about 50% indicated that they believed that many religions can lead to eternal life in heaven. This is the Pew Research Center. They say 75% of Americans across the board believe in heaven. It's much closer to 100% of Protestants believe in heaven, but close to half who acknowledge believing in heaven would say that there are other religions that can lead to eternal life in heaven. See, this is why an understanding of this is so important. And maybe today, if you're struggling with that truth through the power of the Holy Spirit, God would make this abundantly clear to you that that path to be in an eternity with Jesus is a narrow path. It's not wide. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many find it. But narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it. I pray that he would soften all of our hearts to that truth today. And lastly, and probably what I hear more than even the previous two, one of the third misconceptions that we see about how to get to heaven, I hear this one all the time, is that I will go to heaven at the end of my life if I've done more good than bad. I will go to heaven at the end of my life if I have done more good than bad. And this is kind of one of the prevailing thoughts of a lot of world religions. This is one of the prevailing thoughts of a lot of our struggles. At the end of my life, we get this picture that there's this big scale, and as long as the good outweighs the bad, then I'm going to be all right. See, the problem with this line of thinking is it puts me at the center. It puts my eternity being based on how moral I can be here on this earth. And the question that this line of thinking has always begged me to ask is, how much do I have to do then? How good do I really have to be? How many sins can I still have and that scale not be tipped in the wrong direction? Do I have to do one good act for every one sin? See, the problem with this line of thinking is it's a moving target, isn't it? And you don't ever really know if your eternity is secure. I don't know who needs to hear this today. But you cannot be good enough to warrant what Jesus Christ has done for you. You can never be good enough. I mean, if you go back to Acts chapter 4, it says that in that temple court, that the high priests, they were amazed at the faith of the commoners like Peter and John. But you think about these officials. What did these officials have? They had pedigree. They had knowledge. They had hundreds of rules that they were feverishly following. And yet in the midst of all of that, they missed Jesus with them. And they missed and stopped to acknowledge not the beauty of Jesus, but they were acknowledging the keeping of their own rules and the keeping of their own moral standards. And Peter reminds them that Jesus was right among you and you crucified him. The one who was prophesied about came to you and you didn't acknowledge him for who he was and who he is. So again, my friends, know that you can never be good enough 
to warrant what Jesus Christ has done for you. You can never do enough good to garner the favor that we hope and know that we can have through Jesus Christ alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For it's by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Meaning that our relationship with God is all about the grace of God. It's not about anything that I can do. It's not about anything that you could ever do. It's not about your good works, because if it was works that led to salvation, if it was works that led to heaven, what the scripture reminds us is that I would boast. And that, in essence, is the problem with works-based theology, is that I get to boast in all that I have done. Whereas salvation is all about what Christ has done. See, so many of these misconceptions are things that we deal with. And maybe they're things that you deal with. And I pray today that they would be clarified. And I pray that today those misconceptions would come into the light of Jesus Christ and that today you would give him control of your life and that you would boldly share him with others. Because the reality is, and you see this here on your notes, after we die, there are no second chances. After we die, there are no second chances. This is also a pretty popular false teaching about eternity as well. Perhaps you grew up in a faith tradition or a religious practice where you were taught that there's a second chance. There's a place maybe called purgatory where you go after you die, and it's this in-between place, and others can pray you out of that, and they can pray for your atonement and your cleansing because no sin can enter heaven, and that season of refinement cleans us up so that we can go to heaven. Or maybe you were raised in a religious practice that taught you that you can avoid purgatory altogether if your balance is more positive than it is negative. And as long as you commit fewer sins than the sins that you've committed, you have done all that you can do to make up for those sins, then your eternity will be secure. That teaching, however, is not rooted in Scripture. And that teaching is not rooted in the person of Jesus. Rather, it's rooted in works. It's rooted in Jesus plus other things. Not Christ alone, but Jesus plus other things. Whereas in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. See, when we all die once, after that we face judgment. And this judgment is something to be afraid of. I'm not trying to fear monger today at all. This isn't something to be anxious about. This isn't something to worry about because when you understand the grace of God and when you enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ, you realize that it's the perfect love of Christ that cast out all that fear, that you don't have to be anxious anymore, that you don't have to worry about the scale of good and bad. I don't have to worry, have I done enough good to outweigh all of the bad that I have done. See, grace is truly you and I deserving what we don't or getting what we don't deserve. It's this free gift of salvation that I don't deserve. Human grace, we have a concept of. Human grace looks like a lot of different ways. Human grace says to a coworker who messed up or a coworker who you're working on a project with, they dropped the ball. Human grace says, I'm not going to hold that against you. You know what? We all make mistakes. I'm not going to hold that against you. That's you showing grace to someone. To all of you teachers who have parents that tell you that you don't know anything, human grace is reminding them, thank you. And just letting it go. That's human grace. Human grace is saying, you made a mistake, but I forgive you. 
Human grace is saying to someone who is rude to you. Human grace is saying to someone who has gossiped about you. Human grace is saying to someone who has kind of stirred a lie about you that is simply not true. Human grace is saying, I don't hold that against you. That's okay. But the grace of God, that's so much bigger than our human capacity can understand with grace because the grace of God, God's grace says you have sinned against me. God's grace says, you hung me on a cross. God's grace said, you have despised me. God's grace said, you have continued on in your life of sin, but I have made a way through Jesus Christ for you to be made right. God's grace says, I forgive you no matter what you've done, once and for all. You don't have to do a bunch of good to counterweigh all the bad. God's grace says once and for all, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that I am Lord, Scripture tells us you will be saved. And as Peter said to that high court, there is no other name under heaven by which a man or woman can be saved than through the person of Jesus Christ. So what I hope that you've walked away with today is this. What I hope you've walked away with today is this. Forgiven people, not good people, (laughs) go to heaven when they die. Forgiven people, not good people, go to heaven when they die. And and I want that phrase to just settle over you for a second. And I want you to just read those words and seek to internalize those words. That Forgiven people, not good people, go to heaven. Because who among us is good? Who among us can ever be good enough to earn what Jesus Christ has done for us? My friends... In full disclosure, you will not go to heaven because you're good. You will not go to heaven because your mom was a Christian. You will not go to heaven because you were raised in church. You will not go to heaven because you have perfect church attendance at Rolling Hills Community Church. All of those things can be true. All of those things can make you good, but it's not that goodness that secures your eternity with Jesus. It's that humbling before him and asking for his forgiveness and acknowledging that he is Lord of your life. It's only because you're forgiven that you can ever be made good. And that's the power of the gospel. In my sin and in my brokenness, I deserve death. But praise God, there is the free gift of God eternal life to me, and that comes to me while I am broken. Romans 5, 8 says that the demonstration of God's love for us was this, that while we were still sinners apart from God, while we were still sinners apart from God, that's when God showed us his love. And so I hope and pray that you're walking in that truth this morning. But if you're not, or maybe you're questioning that, or maybe you have just some angst about that, this morning we want to give you a chance to respond to that. In fact, I'm going to have you close your eyes, bow your heads for just a moment, and for just a few minutes, as we conclude our service today, I I want you to just, to the best of your ability, to kind of push aside everything that you're thinking about right now. And we want you to grapple with this truth that I can never be good enough for my eternity to be secure with Jesus. But yet when I ask him for that forgiveness, it's all made right. And so this morning, I encourage you to respond to that. The band's going to come out and lead us in a song. We actually have some of our prayer team who's going to be moving through the room as well. They're going to be over here to my right, to your left, if you want to pray with someone. 
And whatever the God, God is stirring in your heart right now, I hope and pray that you'll respond to him. In fact, over here to my right, if you guys can look, you'll see there's a little cross that's just there, a light on the wall. And we just want you to know that this is a place where you can go to pray. And some of our leaders are going to be there, and they would love nothing more than to pray with you and to pray for you about what it means to walk with Jesus. Or maybe there's one of those misconceptions that you've bought into, and you just need someone to pray with you about how to work through that. That's what they're there for. And as the word has been presented, as the Holy Spirit is so present in this place, perhaps one of the things that God's stirring in your heart is just for you to come and pray. And for you to say, you know what, I just want to humble myself before the Lord right now and thank him for what he's done. And thank him for sending Jesus for me. And so this altar is open for prayer this morning. You can come as a couple, you can come individually, you can come as a family. We just want to give you a space this morning to thank God for who he is, to praise him, to acknowledge his goodness. So if you want someone to pray with you, please make your way over here. But otherwise, this is going to be a house of prayer for the next few moments. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills, Download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.